Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. We've got a really great program for you guys today. Philip Morgan of Philip Morgan Consulting uh, is going to be with us on our program today. And Philip helps development shops build solid pipelines of clients and leads using positioning and education-based content marketing. So if you guys are interested in positioning your business better or specialization, then this is the episode to listen to. Philip, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brent. Glad to be here. So give us the quick elevator pitch of what you do uh, right now in your business. Well, I help custom software development shops specialize their services. I do that because, it, I mean, this is part experience and part um, dogmatic belief. I'll just get that out of the way. But I think specializing your services is the best way to solve your other big problem, which is a lead generation problem. And I, I've not met very many software development folks or you know, solo or small shops that don't have some kind of lead generation problem. The ones that have a don't have a position problem usually don't have a lead generation problem. So, in a nutshell, <laughs> I I help them. I um, I teach them. I I coach them. I, I have a book. I have a, a course that helps them. And uh, if they want to reach deeper in their pockets and hire me, I'll help them one on one. Um, and maybe even like do some of the work myself. <laughs> but normally, it's just uh, advising about the best way to move out of a generalist position into something where they're specializing in a way that's meaningful and attractive to clients. So that is in, I mean, what you do is insanely specific. It's like for a specific type of company, it's a very specific service for a very specific reason. What happened in your life that brought you to this service for other companies? Boy, what didn't (laughs) (laughs) I, I just feel like if I gave the whole sequence of events, people would think that uh, I'm just like telling a sob story or something. I mean, w- what happened in broad strokes is I started out as a generalist. And um, in in 2008, I got laid off and I had a technical background. So I had like this background in system administration. I was working for this uh, marketing company that basically just worked for Microsoft. I got laid off along with a bunch of other people. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. I will start my own company. I will work for myself. And I will never make that mistake of having one big client who can you know, shut down my company by uh, stopping spending money. So you were excited that you got laid off. It, uh, <laughs> it was a roller coaster, I got to say. I mean, at first, I was, at first I was, it was disbelief. I was like, what? I'm mm. so valuable. I'm such a special snowflake. How could I get laid off? And then I was like, oh, I get it. Okay. They were bad at business, which resulted in me losing my job. Mm. It's not me. It's them. I can do better. Ha, ha, ha. I'll just go work for myself. And um, It's like the stages yeah. of grief or something. <laughs> I know. Like three, three or four years later, I was uh, selling furniture to make the mortgage 
um, I had already like done. selling furniture at a furniture store, or like selling your own furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. <laughs> I laughed because I had an image of myself working in one of those furniture stores. <laughs> now I was like selling my own possessions. Uh, uh, I mean, really, actually, it was the the one who loved the sofa more was my wife. Mm. Uh, we, we had to sell a sofa to. Um, to make the mortgage one month. Was so that was was, it like a nice sofa? I don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time on the sofa, but I'm just trying to think of my mortgage payment and my sofa would not cover it. And it I don't even, custom, it yeah, a custom. It was a custom made sofa. Okay. Yeah, it was a nice sofa. Okay. And actually what I learned is that, um, the, the resale market for custom made furniture is not like what you would think. Like if you get a piece of furniture made custom, you're like, this is so special. It's perfect. It's amazing. It was made to my requirements. And then you try to sell it to somebody else and they're like, you want $500 for that? It's just a sofa to them. It's just <laughs> <Yeah>. a sofa. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I was spectacularly bad at working for myself. I made the exact same mistakes I criticized my uh, former employer for. I, I got one whale client and I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Let's, you know, let's just ride this client. This looks like, uh, you know, years worth of work. and all the revenue we need and poof, they disappeared. So, um, you know, what got me to the point of believing like with all my heart, with every fiber of my being that specialization is for a lot of people, a way to stabilize their business and make it more profitable was, um, seeing other people do it and starting to do it myself and seeing that it actually worked and also just having proof that the generalist approach, like I, in a way I was lucky because if I, during that same time period, had become an iOS developer, I would have um, been like specializing. What are you talking about? I've got a line around the block waiting to pay me $220 an hour to build stupid iOS apps. What, what are you talking about, Philip? <laughs> specializing. But I didn't. I, I got into a much more commoditized space, which is, um, you know, content creation, content marketing. And I, I really got to see what it's like to be considered a commodity. Hmm. And that, that was a blessing in, in the end. Kind of helped you, you realize what you were doing wrong. So you could change that without, um, having to learn that as like a harder lesson later. I mean, imagine if you were building that iOS development shop or something, you know, maybe you would have scaled up and not really had that unique edge and eventually come crashing down, which I, we did that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, which yeah. Is, is not a very comfortable thing when you have a lot more, a lot more people around. It was stressful enough just being responsible for myself and feeling like I didn't know what levers to pull or, you know, what to do with my business to make it function properly, meaning produce enough profit, enough revenue to, you know, to meet my needs. That was stressful enough. I can't imagine having, you know, a half dozen people dependent on me to, to make that happen for them. Well, it sounds like that's what happened to you before you got laid off in the first place was that some other business failed to grasp their unique market position. And maybe you didn't realize that that was the business mistake that they were making. And then they had to lay you off. Right. That's a great point is I thought the mistake was, oh, you just, if you just have one client, you, you have all your eggs in one basket, you're vulnerable to that client's, you know, all kinds of things happening. And so the solution is to have more than one client. 
for me, that didn't work very well because that brought up different problems. It was like, now I'm uh, multitasking between a bunch of different clients and contact switching, which I, I, maybe other people are great at that, but I'm terrible at it. It just has this overhead cost of really reducing my productivity. Um, and, and really just trying to make the hourly billing model work, which again, it just brought up different problems when I had other clients. It didn't really get to that root cause of having a compelling reason for clients to seek me out. So you've got your content marketing business and your adrenalist. And was there a, a wake up call moment besides selling the sofa? Or at what point did you realize that you need to specialize or, or actually uh, take a little bit of a different approach to how you were trying to run or grow your business? It was more of a gradual um, recognition by having, you know, sort of mentors in my life and people who were like, have you thought about specializing and you know, here are the advantages of doing that. So some of it just came came about um, not through, like it came about through relationships and seeing other people, other companies doing it. And then I was like, well, I, I guess I could do that. And I, I became so interested in it that I started writing a book on how how it could be done almost simultaneously with actually doing it myself. So it, it's hard to kind of put my finger on a specific like aha moment. Um, it was it was much more sort of a, a gradual kind of like the fog clearing gradually sort of a of a feeling. You almost it sounds like you almost became you know specialization or the art of specialization uh, became your specialization. So it did. It's so <laughs> so meta. Yeah, I specialize in helping people specialize. <laughs> I do. It's true. It's true. It, it just, um, it kind of it grabbed me. And it's, I think the reason why is it's not, I, I'm not, I don't want to be dismissive to people who are like, I help, I help you set up an AdWords campaign. There's tons of like nuance and subtlety and art to doing that as well as a sort of science component. Right. But something about specializing, it seems different because it's so, it's like grueling uh, emotional work for a lot of people to, I mean, you can look at it, uh, you can look at examples of people who've done it and you're like, okay, that seems awesome. Maybe that would work for me. And that's the easy part is like mentally recognizing that it could work and understanding how it does work. But then when you do it, uh, it's like all these emotional alarm bells start going off and, um, and you're just like, what am I doing to myself? This is, uh, I, I'm, I'm like putting a little cyanide in each bite of food <laughs> I eat or something. It's like you feel so threatened by, by the process. So I got to admit that that part is um, it, it, not like in a masochistic way at all, but it's just interesting to me to help people go through that sort of, it's a personal transformation thing. Yeah. It's probably very similar to the first time you dramatically, uh, bid higher on a project than you've ever bid before or increase your prices. I think it brings up some of the same fears. And, and, and let's talk about specialization for a second, because I think there's a, a very broad uh, spectrum of what that can mean. And also, uh, it's a very deep conversation. And like you just said, it can be a very uh, personal conversation. And uh, the, the, the first kind of 
I don't know if you call this a belief or an assumption, but I think that, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, which is if I specialize, then that means I'm having to give up some opportunity. I'm going to have to give up business because I, if I'm do only doing, uh, you know, WordPress donation websites for nonprofits doing over a million dollars a year that are operating in Denver, Colorado, and I'm just making things up, but uh, that means I'm going to have to give up all this other business that I get. Yeah. Which I think is probably where some of that fear comes from. Is oh, for sure. Is yeah. that I'm going to give up stuff for this. So, so maybe start with uh, why people think that and how you help them overcome that. You have kids, right? I have a two-year-old and a two-month-old. Okay. And, and do you have a, like a partner or somebody who you had the kids with? <laughs> I don't uh, want to yes, make any assumptions. Yes. My, so. my wife okay. uh, was the one that uh, was pregnant and, and had, had delivered the children. I was uh, just in the room. Okay. So if I said, Brent, um, I have hired your favorite babysitter to take care of your kids for a week uh, so that you can just spend some time with your wife for the next week. What would be your reaction? That, that you hired a, like my babysitter or just I, just, I just made that happen for you. Like somehow <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't even have to think about it. You just are like, Oh my God, I, I came home and the babysitter was there and whisked the kids away. Now I have a week to be with my wife. How would you feel about that? I guess I'd feel pretty good. Yeah. That's what happens when you specialize in a nutshell, <laughs> uh, you get a babysitter and you're, you're, you get to hang out with your wife. Okay, cool. You are relieved of a workload, which is not like a negative workload. Like you don't hate taking care of your kids, but I mean, I'm making some assumptions here, but <laughs> I'm going to make some uh, more, the flattering assumptions. You don't hate taking care of your kids, but it's a workload. It takes you away from other things you could be doing. It causes you to multitask and have to, uh, you know, interrupt your dinner to like give your kids some correction or advice or whatever, you know, like all it, it comes with, comes with a cost is what I'm saying. And switching between different types of clients also comes with a cost. So um, the, at first I find, at least for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people, they're like, they get off on it. They love uh, that learning curve that, oh my God, we just landed a client in this different industry and now we're learning all about their industry and it's so cool and we love it. And that's the experience at first. And then it starts to reduce your effectiveness for the clients where you could produce the most value because you're like, oh, if I could just do some more research for them. Uh, I mean, whether you charge them for that research or not is actually immaterial over the long term because let's say you could do, let's say you're in uh, branding, right? And you're, you have like a bunch of different kinds of clients and you feel like you can't go deep enough into the research to really give them great recommendations. But if you could get rid of all the other kind of clients, except for the one where you feel like it's the best fit. And when I say, I don't mean a specific client, I mean a type of client, like you're going to focus only on fashion uh, brands or you're only going to focus on um, you know, e-commerce companies or whatever. If you can get rid of the things that distract you and you could go deeper, you could probably produce more value or a better outcome or give them better advice or uh, maybe just be more present with them during meetings or whatever. There's all these ways in which you could become a more valuable um, partner with them if you didn't have these other distractions. 
So I guess that's where the analogy kind of breaks down because now you're, I'm calling your kids distractions. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I want to get my kids back, but we don't need to go into the analogy that far. But I guess I <laughs> yeah, see yeah. I see what you're saying is that yeah. there is this, um, although exciting and challenging, there there's a burden of constantly shifting gears to completely different type of work. Right. So from a financial perspective, now I know what, what your initial question was, giving up work, right? When, when you narrow down or focus, you're giving up work. And from a financial perspective, you are, but it's not a zero-sum game because um, this is my uh, Doctor Who reference. Most uh, niches, most uh, markets that you could focus on, they're bigger on the inside. So once you uh, enter that market, it starts to expand because the opportunities will be bigger than you thought they were at first or than they looked from the outside. People will connect you to others within the same vertical after you've started doing some work there. And, or, or something else will happen. And almost every time that weird niche that looked kind of small and, and incapable of supporting your business becomes a very significant opportunity but it only happens after you commit. Hmm. So yes, you are giving up a diversity of work. And I'm not recommending, by the way, <laughs> that anybody go out and say, okay, I've listened to 15 minutes of Philip talking <laughs> and I'm ready to do this. I'm Screw all my all. clients. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to fire everybody except this one client. You need to have a plan, obviously, for developing more business in that area of focus. And you need to uh, do some validation to make sure it's a, it's a good idea. So I'm not suggesting, oh, just go out and fire all your clients and they'll be magically replaced with yeah. uh, you know, ones within your new area of focus. It's, it's a transition that takes years to really uh, execute. But at the same time, um, if you don't do it, you're always uh, kind of a beginner. Like in... I say to some people, I don't actually, I've never said this to somebody's face, but <laughs> I say this via a, an email I have in a sequence. The subject line is, you must love incompetence. You uh, must, I mean, basically when you're starting over all the time, you're operating from, I mean, you, you, you probably have more competence than your client does, but relative to what you could develop, if you focused on something for, you know, five or 10 years, you are at the lowest level of competence when you're uh, just constantly switching from one type of client to another. It's so important for people to understand that. Cause when I, you know, we used to kind of be that generalist when we were running our agency and then we started seeing that, you know, each client we got in a specific market made it easier for us to get that next client. And then we even started developing more processes that created efficiencies in the back end. Uh, and I'll give, you know, I love to give restaurants as the example because we had a lot of restaurant clients and, when I would walk into, and actually my, my mentor for seven years was uh, one of the most well-known restaurateurs in, in Denver, and we, we did a lot of projects and things together, and I spent hundreds of hours with him. And when I would walk into a restaurant, I knew the language. I knew what made them tick. I could count like the seats in the restaurant and get an idea of what made sense for them to spend on a marketing budget. Uh, and I did not know that the very first restaurant project we worked on. And it took me, it took me and my team hundreds of hours of projects and work in that market to gain that level of expertise that when we then walked into a restaurant client or a prospect, 
and you know they were they were asking us about you know oh can we how much for our website or whatever and 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 I would always ask them much more specific questions about what they were doing with their business and in their overall strategy and that's why we would we would win the deals because people would be like okay this company actually gets what we're trying to do here they're not just a random web designer that's right um, if you've ever had the experience of ride like being a passenger in a car with with like a bad driver you just can't relax because you don't <laughs> trust the driver to do what they are supposed to be doing to keep you safe and get you where you need to go without uh, incident. And I feel like it's the same way with client work. Clients can, I mean, not everyone, of course, there's going to be exceptions, but they can sort of smell it on you when you're not, when you haven't been around the block a time or two with a business that is similar to theirs. They um, they just can't relax in and let you take the lead. I mean, did you see that when you as you kind of got deeper into this focus, where clients just trusted you quicker or oh, let you, absolutely, yeah. They I kind mean, of took their hands off the steering wheel a little more. Yeah, I mean, I I tell people that I mean, one of our our rules in uh, in our sales training is that relationships equal interactions over time, and and the only way that you shorten that cycle is is really by creating some type of celebrity or uh, high level of expertise within a market that can that can shorten your discovery process or your sales cycle because there's you know you're not having to build that trust from scratch. Like we went in and worked with a uh, a company one time. They were a uh, a medical manufacturing company that printed testing ink onto like paper. I mean, it was so weird. And I never worked with anybody in that company before and never worked in that industry before. And they just found us on Google. And, you know, we had to, <laughs> I did not have that expertise, right? I did not know how to help them grow their business on the internet. I knew nothing about that industry. And it took, a, I mean, it was, ended up being a really big project for us. But I think in the sales side, um, you know, I probably, I probably had a dozen or more interactions with them prior to them feeling comfortable enough to sign on the dotted line. Uh, whereas one of our biggest restaurant accounts that was, um, Breckenridge Brewery where they, uh, brought us 13 or 14 restaurants in one contract, um, that, that deal was, was like a few meetings. It was, it was like quick and because they had seen, all of this work that we had done and I was able to go in there and ask them the right questions very quickly and reference, you know, specific kind of uh, local celebrities in the marketplace as people that I had done work with. And, and that mm-hmm. was, that gave a lot of credibility to the, the conversation. Yeah. It's so much more of an enjoyable way to work with clients. The thing that freaks people out, I think, or one of them is that it transform transfers more risk onto you. Like you're making more of the decisions, more of the decisions that matter. So there is a, a need to develop your expertise in pace with how you manage your client relationships. Like you, you don't want to have very little experience and pretend to be an expert. Um, but by the same token, the the prerequisite to developing that expertise, I think, is it's, I don't know if it's really that 10,000 hours rule, but it, it's very much like that. It just becomes a lot easier to develop that kind of expertise if most of, or all of your work is, is very focused on a, on a particular type of client or a particular type of problem. You kind of touched on this, but with every new project for the generalist being a challenge, 
but I hear about this all the time from people, the, the kind of the problem statement. Um, and, and it sounds something like, you know, I don't want to do the same thing all day long. Sure. And that's why I don't want to, you know, create a specialization strategy. Yeah. I, I gotta be honest. I still struggle to explain how this works to people. Um, but you are replacing one axis of variety and diversity in your, in your workday. Or, you know, if you look at a year in the life of your business, the type of diversity you're used to is different types of clients, you know, novel challenges that you haven't perhaps seen before. And you're like, and the challenge becomes, can we figure this out? That changes when you specialize and it gets replaced with a different sort of axis of diversity. I, I don't ever hear anybody who has specialized telling me they're bored because what I find is that they move past solving the superficial problems. So when you're, you know, when you're spread thin horizontally as a generalist, the problems you're solving are actually, I mean, I hope you take this the wrong way. I hope you're insulted by this <laughs> folks at home. When I say the problem that you're solving are superficial problems usually. Yeah. And so once you get past those, the really interesting problems start to surface. Um, I mean, I guess I can give an example from my own experience. Like the first level of me being a person who helps people with uh, positioning or specialization was where do you specialize? Like that seems to be the problem. Um, but underneath that, once you develop some ways of solving that, this whole another world of problems like how do you help people navigate the emotional uh, challenges of this process or how do you help people do research like super fast, but it's high quality market research. Uh, all these other problems expose themselves. I don't expect that honestly to ever end. So I've just sort of shifted the balance of problems that other people would find difficult. I'm like, oh, that's easy. <laughs> that's the easy part. There's this other stuff that now I'm working working on coming up with good answers to. So uh, my experience and and you know the people that I've talked to, there's no there's no like reduction in the level of interest. Another thing I'll tell people just by way of it's almost a quip is like, well, who gets who gives TED talks? Do you know any <laughs> generalist who has ever been invited to give a TED talk? You know, one of the most fascinating TED talks I saw um, was this. I think it's Richard Stamler, a mycologist, who was like. 10 ways mushrooms are going to save the world. And you just wouldn't think that something like mushrooms, which most people kind of ignore when they go past in the supermarket, he had all this uh, interesting stuff to say about this very specific subject. You know, generalists don't get access to that world. So it really is just a problem of visibility. You, you don't see all the interesting problems that are under the surface if you could go deeper, I guess is the, the sort of bottom line answer there. Yeah. I think of like, like, is the heart surgeon ever bored? Right. Yeah. <laughs> brain, On his yeah, yacht. Yeah, right, right. Uh, that's the other thing is that um, you can afford to indulge more uh, fun side projects. So if, if you are one of those rare people who's like totally got your specialization dialed in and you're not learning a lot new in the specialization, 
uh, you can probably afford to indulge your interest via side projects or you know things that you do for free. There's pro bono work if you want. I think the um, the other opportunities that come up, and, and obviously you've probably been able to experience this at a business level, you probably get to generate more uh, things like products or software or systems to take maybe some of the things that are routine or could get boring if you just did them the same thing the same way every single time. I feel like specialization gives you that opportunity to create a lot more crystal clear processes and documentation for your business to run maybe without you being fully present or uh, in your case, I mean, you mentioned you got like a book and you got these other like courses and same thing with us that if you are doing the same thing every day, uh, there's opportunity to automate or create things that, um, you know, extend the value of your business without you having to put the time in. That's a great point. Yeah, you're right. That's That stuff is usually not readily available to a generalist. Um, but w- w- once you make that decision to specialize, those start to become options. And it is very interesting to wake up in the morning and look at your phone and see that you sold a few books while you were sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, uh, the, the make money while you sleep myth, right? I mean, obviously you had to write a book, uh, which isn't, isn't easy. Uh, so, you know, you, you don't make money while you're writing the book. You make money after you have the book published. So I, I don't know any generalists who have developed, uh, real business assets. And when I say assets, I don't mean like, um, you own a building, you know, downtown that you rent out, like with the kind of businesses that I work with, those are all intellectual property assets, things like code libraries, they can sell, uh, books, info products, uh, are an example. Um, stuff they could license to uh, clients. So not like a pure software business, but the byproducts of specialization often can be sold on their own. I mean, that's exactly what you said, but just to wrap it in the terminology that I tend to use, those intellectual property assets are another thing that you get, you start to be able to develop that stuff only after you specialized. Yeah. I hear from people all the time, like, I want to create my own products. I want to create my own productized services. I want to make money while I sleep. And what I'm hearing from you today is specialization is step one. Really master a market or a certain kind of service offering. And then once you're uh, at that level, then you can start to create. I mean, I think it's funny, too, because we did this and literally those products or productized services will just like slap you in the face. It's like, you have to do this now because every you're just tired of answering the same question over and over and over again. So you're like, okay, I'll just create a video course and then I'll just sell it. And then instead of me having to answer this question over and over and over again, or charge somebody like thousands of dollars to be my one-on-one client, you can just buy my course for a couple hundred bucks. And then that's that. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a generalist I've ever seen do that. Of course there's exceptions. Uh, I've seen some, some very, talented, uh, smart generalists, like see an opportunity. Um, I mean, an example might be, let's say in the WordPress world, which uh, not picking on WordPress folks at all, but uh, it's easy to be, to, to get into WordPress as a generalist and then maybe see an opportunity to like develop some kind of theme and sell that. So sure you can do it, but I, I agree completely. It becomes so much easier when you've specialized um, it's, it's like you get x-ray vision into something that was invisible to you before. 
You said that one of the things that you're helping people with now is more of this. What's the emotional side of this take? Um, obviously the the thing that jumps out at me is you know fear to do this. I mean, what are some of the other emotional obstacles that come up for people besides just fear of loss of opportunity or fear of imposter syndrome? What what are some of the other things that happen over the course of this transition for people? There's those are the two biggies. There's a fear that you will just make the wrong choice. Mm, like you'll that choose could, the wrong you'll choose the wrong niche or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Someone who decided they really wanted to focus on the real estate vertical, let's say they wanted to make websites for realtors. And if they made that decision in 2007, that I think <laughs> might have not worked out so well for them. You know, so it, it's possible. Like that's not a, what I'm saying is that that is not an unfounded fear. Like that's not just a stupid nightmare. Oh, go back to sleep, Timmy. That's not <laughs> that's not really a monster <laughs> under your bed. That's a real thing that that could happen. So, for sure, that's um, that's worth l- mitigating the risk of making that wrong choice. But uh, so that's another fear that ha- people have that where the you know the antidote to that is. To, to do your homework, do, do some market research and um, and do some validation to kind of reduce the risk that that's what you're doing. Um, but also that's business. I mean, uh, trying to remember uh, where the source of the quote, but uh, someone said all profit is derived from risk in business. Like that's how you, that's how, that's how you premium price your services is by taking on more risk. Actually, I think that comes from Blair Enns, who wrote the wonderful book, Win Without Pitching. Um, so there's always going to be an element of risk, but the, the fear comes in and like, I just, I, I don't know what would make for a good choice about positioning. What do clients need from a specialist and what are they looking for? Like that's often an unknown to someone who is thinking about this for the first time. So there's again solutions to all of that. Uh, you mentioned the imposter syndrome. You mentioned the uh, the sort of loss aversion, where you're like, if this doesn't work out, my business is going to evaporate. Or, uh, I mean, and that's all kind of fundamentally based on this idea that you might make the wrong choice. The thing is, there's just so few ways to actually screw up specialization. <laughs> I'm not kidding, Brent, when I to- tell you that um, in my course, I'm like, if you can't decide, you'll be better off going to what's called the NAICS drill down table. It's just this list of market verticals that um, is produced by some you know pseudo government organization. Printing it out and throwing a dart at it, you'll be better off doing that than not deciding, than remaining a generalist over the long haul. I want to almost kind of restate just because I think what you said was so important. I feel like there is a risk of choosing uh, a specialization and uh, it not working out or not working out ideally, but there's also a risk to staying a generalist. And what you just said is, look, the risk of choosing a specialization and failing is much less than the risk of maintaining your business as a generalist and potentially, you know, getting crushed in the marketplace because you don't have anything unique about you or you're just continuing to get those commodity level pricing. 
Yep. Over, and especially over the long haul, when you start compounding the fact that, you know, an effective hourly rate in the $200 plus range is not at all out of reach to a specialist. It, once they've developed that and they have, you know, their processes and business development in place um, and, you know, three to $500 an hour is, is possible. You compound that over uh, years or decades, and it's just a dramatic difference in where you'll be uh, five or ten years from now as a specialist versus where. And if even if you had a couple false starts, as a specialist, you'll be so much further ahead. Even if you had to like you know change your mind one or two times, you'd still be just oh god, some miles further down the road. I always enjoy when I meet random entrepreneurs and and they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I help, you know, uh, web designers and digital agencies sell uh, $10,000 website projects with my, you know, online business school. They're like, what? <laughs> you can make money doing that? I'm like, yeah, yeah. We can. You know, it's so specific. It's it's not, you know, I feel like that's uh, speaking from, from experience when we started to experiment with specialization and the learning that you go through you know, the very first market that we, we specialized in and went after strategically, you know, we did not like marry that market. We then tried again because we were like, ah, we got a lot of these clients and we don't really like them anymore. So then we (laughs) went and did it again and then we learned a lot more and could do it even faster. And I just, I want to, you know, show you guys, uh, you gurus as proof of this working over the long term. I mean, you gurus, even when we started the business, we even were looking at three or four different markets and we launched products in other space. We launched a product in the peer-to-peer lending space. Uh, we launched a, a product or we're in the process of doing one in the, the uh, orthopedic reconstruction space. <laughs> uh, and, and so like we kind of tested a little bit and every time it was like we learned so much about taking an idea to market and finding that pain and those problems and finding the the commonalities between people within a market. So you could create things that are more product-like and that could scale. And and by the time we committed to really our, our Uyghur's vision, um, it, it wasn't like the first go at it. It was, it was like the 10th. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's real, there's a cost of course, to uh, trying something and not working and trying something different. Sure. There's a cost, but um you can change. That's the lovely thing about uh, services is you're not buying a, a $10 million factory <laughs> and then <laughs> deciding, oh, well, we've got to, you know. Throw that, that away. <laughs> yeah. It's not like that. You can change more more easily than you think. Um, I, I think you brought up something else that is a fear that I forgot to mention, which is that, oh, I'll just hate it. Like, I'll, I'll find out. It'd be like joining, going to a school and finding out you hate it. Like, that happened to my wife. She... Uh, like just kind of went to the school where all her friends were going when she went away to college and uh, hated it and had to transfer, right? That could happen, but uh, there are ways to, again, mitigate against that risk by, I don't know, just talking to people in that market vertical. It's the weirdest thing, Brent, (laughs) when you are some person who's like working at a company and you've been there for 10 or 20 years uh, all everybody in your life is sick to death of hearing about your job. So if some person shows up and is like, teach me, I want to learn about maritime uh, shipping. <laughs> you are in, the, I'm not kidding. I had two conversations this past week with people where that's the niche they're looking into. I'm not saying like that's the next hot thing for software developers to do, but it's so unsexy. Can you imagine like if that was your job that your wife would want to hear about, you know, 
some difficult logistics issue? No, but if some person showed up and was like, hey, I'm thinking about focusing my business on maritime shipping and you know, could I talk to you for 15 or 20 minutes and just ask a few general questions so I don't make a mistake with this change, all of a sudden you've become like a sort of weird kind of rock star to that person. And you're like, uh, yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about stuff that nobody else in my life cares about. <laughs> and that's, I mean, what you're telling people right now is a tactic. Uh, I mean, commonly referred to as customer development or informational interviews. And if you're not specializing, you really just talk to your client that's hiring you from that market. But if you do choose to specialize, then you know I always push people like call the association, start calling people on those membership lists and just say, hey, I'm thinking about getting to this market. I'd love to talk to you about like what goes on. And, and, yeah. and everybody looks at me and they're like, but they're all going to say no. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You're not trying <laughs> to sell them what you do yet. You're just trying to learn. And 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 then I will call people in front of them blindly in markets I've never worked within, and I'm just super curious. And I, I become that person that's asking about maritime shipping, and it's you, people's willingness. Like you are so spot on with this, Phil. Like yeah. their willingness to just unload their lifetime of learning in that market is is so great. They're so happy yeah. to do it. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, just couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. I, I do need to jump to our lightning round, Philip, but um I, I feel like if if you've if they've listened this far and understood what you have to bring to the table with specialization, I feel like um you've you've dropped so much goodness. Um are you ready for lightning round? Let's do it. All right, what is the best advice you've ever received? It's going to happen more slowly than you think. <laughs> There's some other good ones, uh, but yeah, I I think in business that might that might be. It's just you, you got to be in it for the long haul. Might be another way of saying that. Kind of patience, yeah, it's good. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Get, getting up early in the morning. Mm, what time do you get up? Depends. Um, if I need to get more done, I will just get up earlier. So a six becomes five, becomes four, just depends on. Uh, but I think getting up early in the morning, there's this like, uh, the, the world's not awake yet. Even, I'm on the West Coast. So even so, like Slack is not pinging with messages. The inbox is kind of boring. So it, it's this focus time that I have trouble finding in, in any other place in mm. the calendar. I have considered moving to the East Coast just so I could wake up at six and it's like most of most of <laughs> that would be like four o'clock my time right now. So, so, so you can text your friends and be like, why aren't you up slacker? <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm going to leave my team in Denver. I'm just going to move to the East Coast so that <laughs> they don't bother me until until they're up at eight, which would be, you know, practically noon, right? Um, uh, all entrepreneur right. life hacks. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, uh, do you have an internet resource or a tool, something like Evernote or whatever that you use on a regular basis that you think our listeners would find valuable? Well, I, I'm a Mac user and uh, I use Envault for uh, note tracking. It's a, a fork of this thing called notate, notational velocity. It's um, it's kind of a weird, unsexy note-taking tool that once you learn it is uh, very sexy and <laughs> very nice to use. So, Envault, N-V-A-L-T, in case the spelling's not obvious from that. N-V-A-L-T, cool. Envault. Mm -hmm. I'll take a look at that. What book would you recommend and why? I'd recommend Blue Ocean Strategy for... Uh, 
folks who are interested in this idea of like how do you how do you specialize? Because I think it's a really like I could recommend some other books on specialization. Maybe I should recommend my own. But <laughs> Blue Ocean Strategy is great. Uh, really fun case studies, and um, another one, if I can, if I may, recommend a second would be Crossing the Chasm. Um, purely for the case studies, they're so illustrative of how specialization works. That's great, and we will link to your own book uh, as well in the show notes. So uh, okay. take a look at that as well, guys. Uh, how can the audience find out more about you? And is there anything that you have that they uh, could check out? I would point them to positioningcrashcourse.com because I'm such a, a nut about email marketing that any any almost anything you do on my website will end up like asking you to opt into my email list. <laughs> mm. And I'm like super generous with my email list. So if you have questions and you're on my email list, you will almost certainly get uh, an amazing answer to those. But um, yeah, that's what I would say is go to positioningcrashcourse.com. It's a free email course. It will sort of give you some of the details that I had to leave out because there's, I just got carried away talking about um, (laughs) selling sofas. (laughs) This and the uh, selling, selling a sofa. Um, yeah, so so check that out. And if you want a, um, I'll just throw this in there for fun. If you want an example of the power of positioning, Google the word Philip and include the word positioning in your query, just those two words, and see what happens on the front page of Google search results. Um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Morgan, folks, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we will include all of your links to uh, positioningcrashcourse.com. And thank you for uh, offering to interact with folks if they get on your email list and if they have questions for you and all that good stuff. That's that's really generous. And um, I've, I've gone through that email course as well, and it's uh, it's really good stuff. So definitely check that out, guys. If, you're, if anything that Philip has said over the course of this program that has jumped out at you or you're nodding your head or you're running uh, on the treadmill and you're like, this all makes a lot of sense and I have this problem in my business and I'm the generalist, I'm not the heart surgeon, then Philip's a great place to start that journey. So thank you, Brent. This was so fun. Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to uh, see more from you, man. You've uh, your, your specialization here. I think from the last time we had you on our mastermind program, it's been cool to just see your thoughts and uh, ideas around this topic evolve. So uh, congrats mm. on that. And thank you. Uh, yeah, this has been great, man. We'll, uh, share this with as many folks as we can. So thanks for being on the program. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, that's it. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver.